It's a privilege, really, truly, to open God's Word this morning and to look at the, the passage of Scripture and the episode in Jesus' life that I, that I just consider so very special. It's one of those high moment, like uh, just Christologically beautiful moments in the story of Jesus. And it really, frankly, couldn't come at a better time in our series on the kingdom of God from the Gospel of Matthew, because uh, all these months, Jesus has been teaching implicitly and occasionally explicitly that he himself is the king of the kingdom. And just a reminder, the kingdom of God, the reign of God through Christ, presently reigning and ruling in human hearts as those hearts submit to Jesus as Savior and Lord and as King. And as that kingdom advances in the human hearts until Jesus returns, then the kingdom of God envelopes and includes the kingdom of man. And he will rule and reign in every inch of the universe and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And all his enemies will be under his feet and all of his detractors and all the people that mock him and mock his people and blaspheme his name, in that moment we'll see that he is the resplendent king. Now during his earthly ministry, Jesus veiled his true identity and was shy, shy is not the right word, but was intentionally cryptic about who he actually was. Now, there were glimpses, of course, of the power of the king, and you can look at any of the miracles where supernatural, future kingdom of God power invaded into the present kingdom of man, and Jesus quieted the storms, and he healed the diseases, and he raised the dead, and all of those were indications that this person, this man who was walking there in, uh, in Israel was none other than the king. But people didn't put, the, put two and two together. Even you think of Peter, James, and John there at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus just let his true glory shine, did not realize, even after that, who he truly and really is. Now those who had eyes to see would occasionally, you know, they would have glimpses and there would be moments of clarity. I think of one where Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. That was a moment of clarity where one person, at least in that moment, had a clue who this actually was. But everyone else was somewhere between disdaining him, like the Pharisees did, or admiring him, like maybe Mary Magdalene or the Apostle John as a great teacher and a great prophet. But few, if any, realized his true identity. He would regularly tell people, he would heal them, and, and he would say, listen, don't tell anybody. And of course, what would they do? Tell everybody. And fame about him would spread. And we see in that that Jesus was not about, <clears throat> wasn't trying to build his platform. He wasn't you know, trying to get as many friends on his Facebook page as he possibly could. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. Rather, in those, at that season, he was kind of the opposite of that. In fact, when people wanted to enthrone him as king, and that happened on occasion, he would just simply walk away. It wasn't the right time. Even though what they wanted to do was a foretaste of what was going to happen someday, it wasn't the right time. And the reason that this episode that we're looking at today is so special is because it's of all the times in Jesus' life and ministry, 
It's the one time where he clearly communicated, this is who I am. I want everybody here to know, this is who I am. This is Christ coming out. This is his coronation day. This is, uh, you know, the, 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 the coming forth with his greatness and his identity. And much like everything Jesus did, he did it exactly the opposite that you would expect him to do it. So with that introduction, let's get into our text today, which is Matthew 21, okay? Matthew 21. And by the way, we're in the glide path now uh, into the Passion Week of Christ, and we have Easter upcoming and Good Friday and all of the things that make these next couple weeks the best weeks to be a Christian of the entire year. We're on the glide path to Easter And we pick up the story now on what is traditionally believed to be Sunday, the Sunday of Jesus' passion. Look at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Okay, so stop there. If we're reading through the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew has intentionally been building the anticipation for this week and for these moments, and we go back to chapter 16, verse 21, Matthew basically lays out through the words of Jesus the outline of the rest of the Gospel. Here is what... uh, uh, Matthew, I'm sorry, I have Luke 9, 51 down, and I actually had it Matthew 16, 21, so this might be the wrong reference, but it's a verse in the Bible, listen. (laughs) From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Okay, that is actually Matthew 16, verse 21. Here's how Luke says it, okay? When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And we see from this that all the things that happened to Jesus, he was not a victim of circumstances. He wasn't being carried along by sort of the political drama of the day. It was all happening exactly the way that he wanted it to happen. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He tells his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. And so Matthew's telling the story, and he he lays that out, sort of a foreshadowing, okay, literary tool, a foreshadowing of what is to come. He was going to Jerusalem. That is where God had ordained, his father had ordained that all of this would take place. And so he begins the journey, and as he goes, he passes through Jericho, and some things happen there. And he begins the, now the summiting, because Jericho, right by the Dead Sea, lowest spot on earth, Jerusalem is actually uh, at the top of a you know, mountain or a range, so it would say, I used to say when I would teach on this, that you could, if you got on a skateboard in Jerusalem, you wouldn't have to push once before you arrived in Jericho. Like, it's just this winding all the way down path. Well, Jesus is going the other way. They're climbing up, 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 up along a very well-traveled road into the capital city, into Jerusalem. And as he draws near, he tells two disciples, he says, hey, go and 
that town over there, you go there and you're going to walk into town and you're going to see that there's a donkey and its baby and I want you to just take it and bring it to me. Now, is Jesus a thief? No. Who owned the donkey? He did. That's right. And when you own it, you can do what you want with it. And I mean that in the sense that uh, if he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns a few donkeys as well. So uh, he says, go take it and gives him a password. The Lord needs it. If anybody troubles you, that's what you're supposed to say. And so what Matthew does now, and, and he does this throughout his gospel, he wants to connect the events of Jesus' life with all of these Old Testament prophecies that would say this is the way that this is going to play out. And so he often pauses and says, this was done to fulfill the prophecy X, Y, Z. And we see him doing that now with even this act is tied to Jesus as Messiah. And so look at the prophecy here. This is now Matthew's uh, accounting of it. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Now that is quoting Isaiah 62 and Zechariah 9, verse 9. Most of it is Zechariah 9, verse 9. Your king is coming to you. Now, what could be more exciting than for the king to come? Now, we live in a uh, representational democracy here, so we're not as attuned in our own like citizenship and culture to a monarchy. But if you think about uh, another country where the, the king is such a, a representation of the, you know, the, the country itself, and you see, feel tied, think of maybe England a little bit, the monarchy is very different there, but just a little bit, that sense of God save the king, God save the queen, that like connection to the head of your state, the head of your country. What could be more exciting in that kind of a context than for your king to come to you? Here comes the king. Here comes the king. And the prophecy says that your king is going to come. And now let me read a little bit more from Zechariah 9. It goes on with very majestic terms about who this king that would come to you actually is. Here's what it says. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now look at that language. Who could this be talking about? Right? Like what king in all of human history has ever ruled from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth? Historians, can you think of anybody? And the answer is that there has never been anybody that has ever ruled the entire earth. No king in Israel ever rose to that level of prominence. Not David, not Solomon. You look in human history, nobody did it. Alexander the Great didn't do it. Charlemagne didn't do it. The British Empire at the peak of its power didn't do it. Rome didn't do it. The Assyrians and the Babylonians, they didn't do it. Nobody has ever ruled to the ends of the earth. And yet the prophecy says there's a king coming to you and this king is going to have such power that he is going, his rule is going to go all the way around the earth. 
Okay, well, I'd sure like to meet that guy, right? Who's he talking about? Now, how would he come? How would this king come to Jerusalem? Well, you could say, well, how would we expect him to come? Okay, I mean, if you, if you got kings that show up anywhere, generally they have their posse, at the very least, right? At the, at the best, they have an entire parade. They come displaying their glory, displaying their, their power. And so when a king shows up, typically like in Rome, the, uh, the emperor of Rome, after a big battle, would ride into Rome at the head of his massive and conquering army. In comes the king, and there he would be on a white stallion, or he would be at a, on a powerful chariot with all the generals and colonels and everybody else all behind him. Here he comes. He is the great emperor of Rome. He would be riding a symbol of power of some kind. In our modern day, I, I was thinking about, like, what's the modern day equivalent of that? And again, the closest I can come to is, like, is to go back to, to England, where... For example, when, when uh, Princess Diana showed up for her wedding, how did she come to the wedding? Gilded chariot, laced in gold and diamonds and jewels, right? Bejeweled to the max. Uh, you know, people riding horse and all kinds of parade and, and sort of just the, the pageantry of her showing up for her wedding, at the least, think of the president of the United States. How does he travel? Not bad, by the way, right? Air Force One. Air Force One with however many F-16s, F-15s that he wants flying around that plane. He shows up. Or even maybe a little less than that, to think about the black limousines that they travel in and that, that uh, parade of sort of indications, and it's like a tank, right? He's riding a tank looking like a limousine, and he can like rule the, the Western world from this one car. Impressive. And what's the car and the plane and the F-15s and the gilded chariots and the white stallions and the army at his back? What are all of those indications of? I am really important, and I am here to rule you. Look at my power. Look at my majesty. I mean, this is normal, isn't it? In the world, in history, that's just the way that kings and queens, that's the way that they roll. That's normal kingdom of man, glory and power and authority. But this king, this king, the prophecy says, and Matthew says, this king is the greatest king. This king is a king whose power history has never known. He rules the entire world. This king is the king that prophecies were spoken of. This king is the king that the Bible calls the king of all kings, okay? The king of all kings. This is the glorious, great king of all time. And how does he come to you? The prophecy says, he comes to you on a donkey. A donkey? Really a donkey? In fact, not just a donkey. Matthew notes 
that there were two donkeys, a mommy donkey and a baby donkey. And he doesn't even choose to ride the mama donkey. He rides the baby donkey. We ask, why? As the, as the, as the song says, he could have called 10,000 angels to come to his aid. He could have paraded in with the majesty of heaven. But he comes in, not on a donkey, on a baby donkey. Why? Because his kingdom is not of this world. And the character of the kingdom of God is like the total opposite of the kingdom of man, which is about self-aggrandizement and self-glory and power that is about me. The character of his kingdom is not that, but is humility. And even the prophecy says this, behold, your king is coming to you humble. Not only is he riding a donkey, which you never see a king or queen doing, he's also humble. And what better way to communicate the kind of king that I am, folks, totally different than Pilate, totally different than Caesar, totally different than anything you've ever known or seen. I come to you humble. I come to you as a servant. Because in my kingdom, this is true greatness. And I think to indicate that, I'll ride in on a baby donkey. Isn't it fantastic? I mean, just think of that. It's just like, who does that? Christ does that. And we find here now, this is the equivalent. I said, this would be like the President of the United States coming into D.C. for Inauguration Day on a moped. Okay? That's the, that's the equivalent. And the prophet Zechariah prophesied, this is, what it's, this is how he's going to come. And Jesus intentionally fulfills that prophecy and unveils to those that have prophetic eyes, listen, I'm the king that Zechariah was talking about, and I'm coming to you right now. And so let's see what happens now in this kind of coronation of Jesus. Look at verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we'll stop there. This is, this is Passover week. Okay, Visualize this with me. This is Passover week. Some estimates say, the, the population in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area could have swelled to two million people in that area. All of them coming, all the pilgrims coming in from all over the world to be a part of the Jewish Passover. And many of them would have come from northern Israel, the land of Galilee. This is where Jesus for three years has been teaching and performing miracles and feeding 5,000 and raising the dead and all the different things that he was doing. They all had seen it. Guess what everybody's talking about? All the pilgrims from Galilee, what are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus. Did you hear about this? Did you see that? Were you there? Do you think he's coming to Passover? Are we going to see him in Jerusalem? 
Again, this is a day where you don't turn on CNN to see the latest thing. You had to see it with your own eyes. There's not video of it. There's no you know, instant replay. And to have a chance to see the one that everybody's talking about would have been so exciting. And so these pilgrims are making their way into Jerusalem, many of them up that same road from Jericho. They're buzzing, they're talking about Jesus. And John adds something interesting in his account of this. He says this, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. Continued to like say, I saw it with my own eyes. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And what are they talking about? They're talking about this scene, this moment, as Jesus now gets on this baby donkey at the crest of the Mount of Olives, just to the west, just to the west, I'm sorry, the east of uh, of Jerusalem, Jesus gets on this donkey, and the crowds of people, you have the crowd from Jerusalem, and they're all in there, and they're, I mean, they're all talking about him as well, and the reason for that, by the way, I should have mentioned this, the reason for that is that most of Jesus' miracles were performed in Galilee, and these are the sophisticated Jerusalemites, these are the city people, these are the urbanites. And they hear these stories going on in Galilee, and they're like, yeah, right. Kind of like we hear about some miracle in the backwoods of Kentucky. Okay, we're like, we, don't, we, we know those people. They've been inbreeding for years. Who knows what, if it's true or not. And so they're thinking that like in Galilee about like, okay, whatever. But Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Where did Lazarus live? With his sisters. Bethany. Hope everybody's okay with that. Bethany. Bethany is a suburb of Jerusalem. Now Jesus is doing the most amazing miracle in their backyard. They can't deny it anymore as this sort of hickey backwoods guy up in Galilee, like he's doing it right here. And so they're all buzzing, they're all talking about it. And Lazarus, is it possible that Lazarus is a part of this? Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives, and Lazarus just lives around the corner. Could he have been there? Could Mary and and Martha have been there? Possibly. It kind of adds to the story, I think, to realize everybody's talking about Jesus anyway. He's performed this most amazing miracle, and now Lazarus is there possibly walking alongside of him, and they begin to make their way down the slope of the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And the energy, by all accounts, is just one of these like crowd mania moments. Like it's just palatable. People are like, what's going on and, and what's happening? And I got thinking about like what would be an equivalent to this. And I got in my mind, I thought about uh, the, what happened in the United States when the very first lunar mission came back. And the ticker tape parade, go ahead and roll the tape right now. Some of you uh, weren't born yet, but uh, just here's some, here, this is New York City, 1969, okay, Neil Armstrong, they've just gotten back, and everybody's just like, hey, where is he, right, where is he, can I, I just want to get a glimpse of him, and you know, here comes the ticker tape, and the crowds are kind of, you know, filling up, and here comes, of course, the entourage, and, 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 
What's everybody want to see? Who's everybody want to see? They want to see these guys right here. Look at, look at everybody. It's just so excited, right? Here, here they come, okay? Here they come. The astronauts, the very first people in history to the moon and back. Now, here's my question. If people like us get that excited about seeing somebody who went to the moon and back, what's the interest in somebody that went to death and back? What's the interest in seeing not just the person who went to death and back, but the person who did the miracle? Do you see what this is going on? And so Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives, and the Galilean pilgrims and the people from the surrounding outside the city are now building, and they're starting to shout, and they're starting to sing. And this is a time where you don't have that like constant drone of sound, uh, the interstate sound in the background. It's just quiet. No engines, none of that. You get a, you know, some thousands of people shouting on the side of a mountain, and here's the city. What is the city here? They see it. They hear it all. And everyone's like, what's that sound? And what's that shouting? And what's going on? And they're like, it's Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's coming to Passover. In fact, he's coming down the Mount of Olives right now. And again, look at that tape. And then your mind think, what do people want to do? They want to see him. And so you have now thousands of people that are rushing out of the city coming up the road, and you have thousands of people that are already with Jesus coming down the road, and you have this like, and in our mind, we want to think everything in the Bible is very solemn and serious, and the people, you know, everyone's like this. No, it was not like that at all. It was mass chaos. So massive that the Pharisees who hated Jesus look at it and they say, the whole world is falling at his feet. That's the scene. Wouldn't it be great to have been there? <laughs> I mean, seriously, wouldn't it be great to be there? Fantastic. And so he comes down this mountain, the Mount of Olives. This mountain, famous mountain, at the bottom of it is, the, uh, is Gethsemane, of course, the key part in the story in a few days comes down this mountain. I just have a couple photos again to help you visualize this. Here's modern day. I think it's the first one. Here's the modern day Mount of Olives. Okay, right here. Such a, a beautiful picture. And I wonder if we can put it on the big screen. I thought we were going to do that, but if we can't, we'll just leave it right here so you can see it. There we go. We got some great people in the back, don't we? That was amazing like that. Not miraculous, but pretty amazing. <sighs> so there's modern day Mount of Olives, but here's an artist's rendition of the view from the Mount of Olives coming into Jerusalem, okay? So here he comes down the mount, and there's the temple, and there's the city, and I think we have one more, maybe, one more picture, possibly. Okay, that's it, all right? So visualize this with me, just people rushing, people shouting. The text says that they're cutting down trees nearby, and they're waving palm branches. They're taking their clothes, their cloaks off, and they're putting them, and every step of that donkey down that mountainside is, is on the clothes of people. That was a way that people showed honor, sort of like first century red carpet, okay? But that's how they treated royalty. And they're singing psalms over him. 
which really made the Pharisees very, very mad. Psalm 118, verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, literally, God saves. God saves. What's all this all about? It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's coming. He is coming. And so you have this moment where these two waves of of humanity sort of collide there, maybe at the base of the mountain, we don't know where. And again, it is not an orderly event. And all of this, I think, leads to the real important question. This is the thing that I, besides historically interesting, thank you very much. I want everybody here to know what this actually means and what it means for you and for me. Why did Jesus choose the triumphant entry? What is the purpose of this? And we pick up the story, look at verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The Greek word for stirred up, the whole city was stirred up, Greek word, we get the word seismic from it. It's like the whole place is shaking. The whole place is rocking. The whole place is just like, there's this huge like disturbance that has happened. And again, it didn't happen quietly. It wasn't just for his followers. It's not someone back, back hill somewhere up in Galilee. It was public. It was explosion. It was emotion. And clearly, Jesus intended for this, right? This was planned by Jesus, and we should ask, why did Jesus do this? Listen to Carson. But the ride on a colt, because it was planned, could only be an acted parable, a deliberate act of symbolic self-disclosure for those with eyes to see, or after the resurrection, with memories by which to remember and integrate the events of the preceding weeks and years. Secrecy was being lifted. Friend, if, if, if right now I say, hey, let's all go outside, and we all go outside, and here comes a, a, a low flyby, and it's Air Force One, what do you think in your mind? The President of the United States has come. Why? Because there's Air Force One. The ride tells you who it is. And 500 years prior to Jesus, there was a prophet who wrote, he wrote this. He said, here's how you're going to know that the great king, the Messiah, the one we've all been hoping for and talking about, how you can know that he has arrived. He will come to you riding on a donkey. That's going to be a sign. Now, why is that such a great sign? The same reason that when the angels, when Jesus was born, they said, hey, go into the town of Bethlehem and you're going to know that the the special child, uh, who the special child is, because he will be laying in a manger. Now, why was that so effective? Because people don't put babies in troughs that animals feed from, generally speaking, right? Any parents here do that along the way of your parenting? Probably not, right? Parents don't do that. It's a great sign. And a great sign that the great king has come is not that he comes at the head of an army because that's how all the kings came. You will know that it is the king I'm talking about if he comes to you in the opposite way that any king comes into his capital city. Riding on a donkey. That's how you'll know. 
He'll be riding on a donkey. Now, did the people get it? Did they get what this was about? Not really. Now, you might say, but wait a second, they were so excited. There was so much emotion. They were waving palm branches. I mean, if there's a sure way to know you're going to heaven is to be at the triumphant entry and be one of the people that are waving palm branches, you must be saved. But wait a second. How did they answer the question about who this is? The crowds say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What is the problem with that answer? Is it correct? Well, in a certain way, it is correct, isn't it? Was his name Jesus? Yes. Was he a prophet? Yes. Was he from Nazareth? Yes, he was. What is missing? What is missing is, I believe, what many people who will spend eternity in hell missed in their life. And I don't want it to be any one of us here today. In hell, you will hear people that will say, I knew Jesus was great, but I never knew he was that great. I knew Jesus was great, but I never knew he was that great. What do I mean by that? Was Jesus a prophet? Yes. And no, he was so much more than a prophet, right? Was he a teacher? Yes. But he was so much more than a teacher. Was he a miracle worker? Yes, but he was so much more than a miracle worker. He is from Nazareth. His name is Jesus. He performs miracles. He is a teacher. He is a prophet. But you, you have to realize he is the king. He is not just the king. He is the king of all kings. And if you miss that identity, you are missing the central person and ID of who Christ is. He didn't ride the donkey, friends, to announce that he was a prophet. He rode the donkey to announce that he was a king. And not just any king, the prophesied king, the king of kings. And he came in humility. He came as a servant. He came as Messiah. He came as Savior. And yet for all of the excitement and all the palm branches and all the you know, singing and the psalms and everything else that was about, of it, about that, it would only be a few days later that this same Jesus that the whole city is singing and talking about would die on a cross right outside that same gate. And perhaps some of the same people, part of this whole thing, assenting to it. He came as king, but he came humbly to die. And the way he came into the city foreshadows the events that are about to happen in his life. And so the triumphal entry of Jesus was Jesus' final and very public statement to the whole nation right there in the capital. I mean, there is no bigger stage in all of Israel than there in Jerusalem. And he says very clearly to them, I am the king. Now, did he know that many of the people, most of the people, perhaps all the people, wouldn't get it? Okay? They'd have a great party. They'd have a story to tell. I was there. I got to see it. Yes, but that they wouldn't get it. Did Jesus know that? And of course he did. 
So why would he ride into Jerusalem on a baby donkey? And I believe the reason that Jesus did that, besides fulfilling the prophecy, was to communicate to the millions of people after his death and after his resurrection, the spiritual seekers, the people that are intrigued about the person of Christ, to communicate clearly to them his true identity. Looking back, you know, the disciples in this moment, they're like, man, this is amazing. We're really having success here. Look at all the popularity we have right now. And yet only after the, the de- his death and his resurrection would they look back and with eyes of understanding realize. They would connect the dots. Okay, wait a second. A descendant of David, born in Bethlehem, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. Huh. And so Jesus puts into his story a hard-to-miss, prophetically fulfilling clue to his real identity. We call it Palm Sunday. Is it about the donkey? Is it about the palm branches? Is it about the shouting and the singing, the size of the crowds? No, friends, I want you to realize it is about him, the one that was riding the donkey. It is about understanding who his real person is, his real majesty is. And Jesus intentionally fulfills the prophecy to say unmistakably to Israel, this is who I am. I am the king whose reign someday will be from shore to shore, from sea to sea. It will envelope the entire universe. And the question from Palm Sunday is, what about you? Are you a fan, like the wave of the palm branches? Are you a singer? Yeah, I like to sing. I'll sing about Jesus. Doesn't matter. The thing that matters is, do you see and believe that he is king of kings? And he is your king, the Messiah of God, the savior of the world. Do you see that it's, that's what that's about. And Jesus did it because he wants you to know who he is. No more hiding, no more don't tell anybody. Tell everybody. Tell everybody, I want everybody to know who I am. This is who I am. I am the king. And I just gotta ask you, like, who do you, what do you believe about Jesus? And how many sort of prophetic fulfillments and different things do you need in your heart to become convinced that he is the one that you, your heart is longing for? He is the king that you have been looking for. He is the lover of your soul. He is the one that died. He is the humble servant who rides the baby donkey into the capital city to die for the sins of the world. What more do you want? What more could you want him to, what more could he have done to show you, my friend, that he is the one that you need? Is he your king? Is he your Lord? Maybe you say, well, I think he's a great man. So did they. I think he's a great teacher. So did they. I think maybe he even was a prophet of God. Many people believe that that day. But they didn't realize that he was more than a Galilean, and he was more than a Nazarene, and he was more than a prophet, and he was more than a miracle worker. He was and is and forever will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords.